Well, older kids, you're going to have to carry the show today. There you are. Who wants to go first? Leo does. Okay. The woman at the well asked Jesus, are you greater than our father? Jacob, very good. Who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his... I'll give you a clue, he had 12 of them. Huh? His sons um, and his... livestock. All right. Selah. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Very good. Whoever drinks from this water I give them will never thirst. In, indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to Huh? Um, think of John 3.16. What is, what is the pinnacle of John 3.16? Two words. Eternal life. Eternal life, yes. Um, all right, Trekker. I have no blank, she replied. Very good. Um, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Okay, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5 as we continue our study. I'll set the stage a little bit for Daniel chapter 5. We will pray and then we will dig into the chapter. We left off last week with Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. Um, he probably converted a, a short time before 562 B.C. We know from history that Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C., which was the end of his reign as king. There would be no king in Babylon like Nebuchadnezzar. As we come into Daniel chapter 5, we're now in 539 B.C. We are 23 years later. There have been multiple people on the throne in Babylon, none of them successful. Um, the person that is actually the king of Babylon during this time is named Nebonidus. Um, and they have, in the past decade, found a lot of artifacts that prove that he is. Belshazzar, who we're looking at, is seldom found in history because he is never an actual king. He is Nebonidus's firstborn son. History says that during this time, Nebonidus is in Syria, Tima, Syria, fighting against the Persians, who are trying to take over Babylon, and he has been gone for years, and the acting king is Belshazzar. We will see the queen come up early in this chapter. The queen is actually Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. 
Nebuchadnezzar's daughter had a son named Nebonidus. So Belshazzar is King Nebuchadnezzar's great-grandson. He is the queen who will enter this story's grandson. Um, when we look at the time frame again, I'm just setting the stage. The first six chapters of Daniel are his lifetime. The, the next six chapters are the ministry that happened within that same time span. So if you ask me to pick a chapter in the Bible that has more extensive prophecy than any chapter in the Bible, it would be Daniel chapter 7. So we're in Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8 would have been written in the time period between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. So it's not like there's a 23-year time out. Daniel's prophecy ministry is going on during this time. If we look at 539 B.C., which is Daniel chapter 5, it would just be probably months after this that Daniel would be thrown into the lion's den. So those are very close in time. It would also be during the same time period as Daniel chapter 9 is written. So Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel writes the 77s, Daniel chapter 5, where he sees the handwriting on the wall, and Daniel chapter 6, where he's in the, um, thrown into the lion's den, probably all takes place in the same year. So this is actually a busy time in Daniel's life, and we look at these things as they come together. When we look at the way I'm studying this time, I never looked at it this way, Daniel 4, 5, and 6, you have a foreign king who repents, a foreign king who doesn't repent, and a foreign king who repents. So it's actually a beautiful picture with the harsh reality of Daniel chapter 5 that a repentance avoided can only bring wrath. Let's pray before we dig in. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for another day. Um, with our finite minds to do what Paul always prayed for, to know you, your son, and your story better. Help us to appreciate and understand what is happening in Babylon many years ago and why it is in our Bibles. When our Bible is limited to God-breathed words, this story is important to God, therefore it must be important to us. Thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's dig into the text in chapter 5. <clears throat> King Belshazzar, and we've explained from historical events, we will see evidence within the chapter as well that he's not an actual king, but he is acting king. He gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine from them. You can Google on your phone, and they, you can see that they have reconstructed the palace that existed because the foundations are still there. They have found this specific room where over a 1,000 people met, and they have found articles within that room that were used during Daniel chapter 5. So it is a historically established place that we are looking at in this throne room where Belshazzar is. Verse 2. While Belshazzar was drinking wine, he gave orders 
to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, this is how we know that the, the queen, for example, isn't his wife because she will come into the scene later and his wives are already there. It's not one of his concubines because his concubines are there. His wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. So we are in this place where we read they are, they are drinking, they are feeling fine, and the king gives orders to go into the, the storehouse of his gods, get what Solomon made to worship God for the temple in 470, it'd be 466, or excuse me, 966 BC, and he wants to shake his fist at the God of heaven. He wants to praise his gods by drinking wine from the articles that were pointing to Yahweh. He wants everyone around him to do it. So if you look online, you'll see where there's the platform where he and his concubines would have sat. And he wants to present to these thousand nobles, look who I am and look who I am mocking. He is literally shaking his fist at God. And he is worshiping gods of stone, of wood, and of silver. We're told in Deuteronomy... Moses, long before Israel is a nation, long before they have any kings, he says, God says in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, he says, you're going to be, you're going to ask for a king, you're going to have a nation, you're going to disobey me, you're going to worship idols, you're going to ignore my Sabbath, I'm going to send you into captivity where you worship gods made of stone, silver, and wood. And we know from our story so far that everyone has except four people. Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Because everyone else bowed down. So there is only at one time four people, and these people are significant. We picked up Daniel, and you think of the progression of his age. He's about Leo's age as the book of Daniel begins. Daniel in chapter 5 is 80 years old. This is a very old man, and as we will see as we read into this story, he is now an ignored old man. His father had a, his great, great, or his great grandfather had a very close relationship with him. We will see from our text that when Daniel comes on the scene here, that he doesn't even know who Daniel is. Um, so, in this context, I have in your notes there Galatians 6 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. What this man is reaping is, God, I defy you. I proclaim myself. I proclaim the God of Bel, the God of Murdoch, 
and the gods of Babylon, and I laugh at you as I drink from your forms of worship made by your king, Solomon. Remember, Solomon was a picture of Christ in Psalms 2 and Psalms 110, and he is mocking God here. Verse 6, if I ask the question, you could debate with me in verse 5 whether or not there needs to be an answer to this question. But whose finger is this? It has to be Jesus. When we read in Exodus, and you could write this in your Bible if you want, Exodus 31, 18, and Deuteronomy 9, 10, the finger of God wrote on the stone tablets when Moses was on the mountain. And we know that the only God in the Godhead who has ever been seen is Jesus. The only person who ever takes on a human form is Jesus. So literally, the person he's shaking his fist at is Jesus because Jesus is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who rules. He's the creator, and he will be the sacrifice and the redeemer. So Jesus' hand comes down, and he literally sees a a theophany of Jesus' hand writing on the wall. The laughter and the mocking and the drinking takes a turn, verse 6. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. I don't know if I've ever been that scared, but he's so scared, it's difficult for him to stand. The king summoned the enchanters and astrologers and diviners. Then he said to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads the writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around their neck and they will be made, this is the first of three times we will see this, the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So history tells us that Nebuchadnezzar is king, and we have articles now that prove that, and it proves that Belshazzar was his firstborn son. But Nebuchadnezzar makes Daniel the second highest in the kingdom. Darius, chapter 6, will make Daniel the second highest in the kingdom. Belshazzar can't do that because it's him. Belshazzar is the second highest in the kingdom. He is the firstborn son of the true king, the historical king, Nebuchadnezzar. So he promises to put him, Daniel, or whoever else, in this case, the astrologers, I'll put you immediately under me, which makes you third highest in the kingdom. Verse 8, then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more Hail. Verse 9, so Belshazzar became even more tired and is, he, he is trembling. He is becoming more fearful. This text, which we will read later in this chapter, is written in Aramaic. They speak Aramaic. Daniel is writing this in Aramaic, and they still can't read it. They are nouns and verbs from the Aramaic language that that have to do with measures and weights, but it's written in a script that they've never seen before. It's their language written in a way that no one can read it except Daniel. This is a unique situation. Turn to Romans chapter 1 for just a minute. So we see the progression of pride and sin 
in Belshazzar's life, we looked at Romans 2 in relationship to Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> we read in the opening verses that they were worshiping gods made of stone and wood and silver. Um, this is the progression that leads to that. Verse 18 the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, these two verses tell me that Belshazzar knows exactly what he's doing. Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, long before Belshazzar, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people like Belshazzar are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images that look like a mortal human being or birds or animals or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. We read that he has many wives and concubines here for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who, who is forever praised. Amen. Let's go back to Daniel. But you can see from Paul's description there, he's describing Belshazzar, but he's describing Joe Biden as well. He's describing anyone who knows what can be known about God and refuses to know any more and goes from that refusal to the direct mocking of God. So what we see in the government in this country is directly into Genesis, just like Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar, that we're going to say that his plan for the family is no longer necessary, that his plan for sexuality is no longer necessary, that we have our own ideals, that we will worship owls more than we will worship babies. This is the condition in Babylon that is similar to the condition in the United States in our lifetime. Reading on verse 10, <clears throat> the queen, and this would be Belshazzar's grandmother, the mother of the king, the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. So age-wise, this woman would be very similar to Daniel's age because Daniel would be of a similar age of if he was a son of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Daniel is 14 when Nebuchadnezzar becomes king. So De Nebuchadnezzar is undoubtedly at an age where Daniel could be his son. So this woman grew up with Daniel in the house of Nebuchadnezzar. And she saw everything that Nebuchadnezzar would have seen. She probably saw Jesus going to the fire with those three boys. She probably knew of, certainly, the interpretations of chapter 2 and chapter 4 
and she knows for sure that Daniel has the spirit of the holy gods in him as Nebuchadnezzar described him. So that's who we read here in verse 10. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, and this is referring to his great-grandfather, similarly to Jesus being the son of David, similarly to, if you read through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, the kings following David are called the son of David. In the northern kingdom, the kings following Jeroboam, the first king of just the northern kingdom, call sons of Jeroboam, or their father Jeroboam. So this very similar here is referring to his preceder, but is actually his great-grandfather, and his history establishes that as well. Verse 11, there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians. So what has happened to this point is all of the magicians, all of the astrologers, all of the diviners have been called in. Daniel's no longer in that group. He's no longer chief of that group. He is, in relationship to the person sitting here on the throne, neglected and ignored. Like I said, from a prophetic standpoint, he is writing Daniel chapter 7. He is writing Daniel chapter 8. As far as the kingdom is concerned, he's insignificant. He's not a major person in Babylon anymore. So verse 12, he did this because, well, back up to verse 11. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, put him second in command, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom your father called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams. We don't see all of these in Daniel. Explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel, if you had a riddle, if you had a difficult mathematical problem, if you had an engineering question, you could go to Daniel, and he could answer any question. Um, just to keep everybody awake for a minute, I don't know why this popped in my head this week. I'm going to give you a riddle. Does anybody like riddles? Raise your hand if you know the answer, because if mom raises her hand, I won't let, I'll ha have you do your own research. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. Honey? Lion, very good. That was the riddle that Daniel gave to the, the, the men of, when he went down to Timnah to get a wife, and he said that, I will do this, if you tell this riddle, and eventually they found out, right? Because they so oppressed his wife and prom promised to kill her family that she told them 
so that led him to kill 30 of their men and bring their uniforms, tells us that God incited that so that he could bring war between the Philistines and the Israelites. But that's from Judges 14. Very good. Um, so in verses 10 through 12, what we see there is Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, Belshazzar's grandmother, reminding Daniel, reminding Belshazzar that there is a man who can answer this question. That's bold. There's history with this queen, now old woman, who says, not, maybe you should ask him and see if he knows. If you ask him, he will know, she says. This is the grandmother um, of, or the, yeah, the grandmother of Belshazzar. She's not even invited to the banquet. Or she has said no thank you to the banquet. She walks in and says, may the king live forever. Ask Daniel. He'll tell you. This is probably someone we will meet someday. Verse 13 <clears throat> So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, and this shows that he doesn't even know who Daniel is, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard, he has just heard, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men, the enchanters, were brought in before me to read this writing, and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now, I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made, this is the second time we see it, the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel said to the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, in other words, let me start with this, over all your gods and you, the most high God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He wouldn't have known Daniel, but it's hard to believe he wouldn't be familiar with this story. Verse 21, he was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like an ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Daniel reminds him of what has happened in the history of his kingdom, of Belshazzar's kingdom, and he tells us what did happen with Nebuchadnezzar, that he did repent, 
that he is the most high God, he starts with, and on the day that Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged him as the most high God, he restored him as king. Daniel chapter 4, a repented king. We are in a chapter of an unrepented king. Um, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7 in your notes, Cain, he says, God says something to Cain. Jesus effectively says something to Cain that he says to you and he says to me. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must rule over it. So when we look at verses 22 through verse 24, he says, but you... Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. In other words, you knew that this had happened to your great-grandfather. Instead, you have set up for yourself against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand and wrote the inscription. I'm kind of a Bible geek, but it's really cool to me. Look in verse 23. Daniel does something really creative and important here. He says, instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. He is writing in Aramaic. So there is no Hebrew name that we can plug in here unless you're Daniel. So look in your notes there, I have that the word in Hebrew, or in, excuse me, in Aramaic that is written here is mer, M-A-R-E. You have the definition of the Aramaic word mer in your notes, domineering a master lord. There is a Hebrew word for that, it's called Adonai. Daniel is so intentional here that he writes it and, and it's translated to us, capital L, small o, small r, small d. So it's translated Adonai in the Hebrew. Daniel is the smartest person on earth, obviously. He is Holy Spirit led, but I just think that that is so cool that he uses, of all of the names that he could use for gods, and there are many names in this chapter for the gods of Babylon, he chooses an Aramaic word that says Adonai to us. Remember Abraham, Genesis 15, said Adonai Yahweh, then he believes, then God credits him righteousness. We looked in Ezekiel 33 last week, where Ezekiel is told to tell these people about Adonai Yahweh. The way that he could say that in Aramaic to Belshazzar is mer, 
which has the same definition as the word Adonai in the Hebrew. Verse 25. This is the inscription that was written here. And like, like I said, these are a, a, a combination of, there are nouns and verbs here in Aramaic that have to do with weights and measures, and it'll, it'll kind of read that way to us. The inscription is mean, mean, tikil, person, and I'm probably not saying any of them right. He is, or here is, what the words mean. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tikil, you have been weighed on the scales and been found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So even though these words are Aramaic, nobody can read them but Daniel. Daniel can not only read these words that nobody can read, but he can give them their Webster's Dictionary version of exactly what they mean from heaven. That God has put you on the scale and you have sunk. God has decided how long you will reign. Remember, he, Daniel said to him earlier, just like Nebuchadnezzar said in his testimony, he is able to humble those who he wants to humble, and he is able to set over kingdoms anyone he wants to set over them. So, unfortunately, in our country, we have leaders who are fitting to our country, just like Belshazzar is. There is a leader coming soon who will be the right leader. In this case, going back um, half of a millennium before Christ, he is about to put a, a subservient of Cyrus named Darius on the throne in place of Belshazzar, and Darius, we'll find out next week, we will see in heaven. So Daniel steps into the room Here's what it means. Your life is over. Your reign is over. You have been judged by God. And he has already said to Belshazzar, you refused to repent. In other words, the time of mercy and grace offered to Belshazzar is over. There came a time in Pharaoh's life where he hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, six times he hardened his heart. And then God said, okay, now I'm going to harden your heart, and I'm going to show the world something they will never forget. So everywhere the Israelites went, from that moment on, they knew about the Exodus. They knew about the Red Sea. They knew about the plagues, and they knew about Pharaoh. Let's read on. Verse 29. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was promoted to the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So I've explained this a few times that what is happening is Nebonidus is out losing 
battles by this time, north of and, and east of Babylon even, and south and west, he's been traveling for about 10 years. And now in Babylon, the city is completely surrounded. They have impenetrable walls. They have iron bars that go down into the water to a certain depth. And what they have done, and this is historically accounted, is they, they were digging rivers away from the Euphrates so that the river that was diverted into the city would go dry. And they literally walked in the city under these iron gates. And the city was full of Persians and Medes at this moment. So as soon as Daniel finishes speaking, they walk into the palace, put him to death, and Darius sits on his throne. The word of Daniel, the word of God through Daniel. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9, as we look to the future, we see words coming from John, like we heard from Daniel, to those who are unrepentant. Daniel chapter 9, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. This is in the second half near the end of the tribulation. The rest of mankind were not killed by, the, by these plagues, still did not what? Repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons, which Paul talks about. We'll be studying that on Wednesday night. And idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Where did we hear that? Daniel chapter 5. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, which is pharmacia, their use of drugs, their sexual immorality. We saw the king with his concubines and his wives, plural, or their thefts. Turn to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation 16, now we're at the end of the tribulation. We pick it up in verse 10. The fifth angel, this is of the five, of the seven bowls. We are hours away from the return of Christ here. Poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness, very similar to what is happening in Babylon in 539 B.C. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. We see this as a condition of man. We read it in Romans 1. We read it in Daniel 5. We read it in the book of Revelation. Turn to Jonah chapter 2. <clears throat> going to do a few things in comparison here, but the, the primary thing that I'm showing here is repentance can happen anywhere. That, that neighbor that you want to witness to or don't want to witness to because you just don't. Um, we see that in Jonah. Um, we want to look at this example first. Jonah chapter 2 
What we're going to see here, because we're not going to spend a lot of time here, is that a king is going to repent. A king that nobody on earth thinks would repent, similar to Nebuchadnezzar and maybe Darius, certainly Nebuchadnezzar. Assyria is Babylon here. We're about two centuries earlier from Daniel chapter 5. Babylon is a thorn in the side of Assyria. Assyria is the clear world rulers. Nineveh is their capital. The king is there. I have a king, his name written at home. I don't remember it right now. But he's not going to repent unless he hears the truth. Before he repents, the people of Nineveh start repenting before the king. Before they repent, a prophet has to repent so that repentance can go forward. So as we pick it up in verse 7, we see the repentance of a prophet. When my life was ebbing away, Jonah said, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols, we've been talking about that all day today, turned away from the love, God's love for them, Romans 1. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. God's response, like it was to Zacchaeus, like it was to Nebuchadnezzar, like it will be to Darius next week. His response, verse 10 and the Lord commanded that the fish to the fi- commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time: Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, which John the Baptist and Paul would say, obedience in keeping with repentance and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. Is it enough to believe, or do you need to repent? A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, Paul says. Verse 7, this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion, turn from his first anger so that we will not perish. What's a word that describes that? Repent 
the king is saying, turn from this fierce anger so that we will not perish. It's interesting in verse 10, that doesn't mean anything necessarily, shows God's response to Jonah's repentance. Verse 10 of chapter 3 shows God's response to Nineveh's repentance. When God saw that what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Turn to Acts chapter 26. From a human perspective, you have a wicked group of people that you care about and God is willing to send someone to them. And you have two options. God is saying, I will send Jonah to them, or I will send Paul. Who would you pick? I think I'd take Paul. The point that we're making here, one of the points, is that it's not the individual. It's the message. It's the truth of God and not necessarily the eloquence of the truth givers. In what is happening here in Acts chapter 26 is Paul is giving his testimony to, um, I believe, Festus and specifically King Agrippa. He is doing what Jonah did with the king of Assyria, what Daniel did with Nebuchadnezzar, now Paul, maybe the greatest evangelist who ever lived, is doing the same thing with King Agrippa. And Agrippa probably knows at least as much, probably more than either of them about Yahweh. Verse 14. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in what? Aramaic. The same language as Daniel chapter 5. We don't we don't know this without studying it. Most Bible translations don't have that in their text, but in his three testimonies, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26, in all three of them, in the Greek language written New Testament, Saul is written in Aramaic. So from each of those, we know that Jesus is speaking to Saul in Aramaic who can speak Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. We all fell to the ground, and a voice, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, and both of those are Aramaic, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goad. So an ox goad is, is a staff that has points on one end of it so that when you're plowing behind them, you can prod them and keep them moving. It's kind of the equivalent of a, a cattle prod electric charger that we have today. But it, he's using this metaphor because Paul is pushing against Christ and his church. The very truth that Paul holds to, he is, he is finding it hard to push against the church. So what is Paul doing? He's pushing harder and harder. You can't walk away from God. You have to run. You can't mildly persecute Christians if you know as much truth as Paul is. You have to decide religion or truth, and he is choosing religion. And Jesus is telling us that for Paul, that was hard to do. 
He doesn't know why, but it's hard for him to be a Pharisee when he knows as much truth as he knows. Verse 15, then I asked the Lord, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness. If you just stop right there in that verse, everyone in the room is in that appointment. Of what you have seen and will see of me, I will rescue you from your own people and from Gentiles. I am sending you, that's one word there, apostello. I am apostolizing you, Paul, as the one abnormally born in, we would read, I think, in 1 Corinthians 15, 8. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. Whether it's Ezekiel or Jonah or Daniel or Paul. And from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. They have to turn and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, not like Jonah was at first. First to those in Damascus, from the day his eyes were opened, when Ananias laid his hands on him, he started preaching in Damascus that the one I persecuted is the true one. Then to those in Jerusalem, where they tried to kill him there also, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. We saw that picture in Jonah. We didn't see it in Daniel 5. This is why some Jews seized me in the temple of the courts. He's explaining now when he was arrested and he's on trial here and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets like Jonah and Daniel and Moses through Deuteronomy said would happen that the Messiah would suffer as the first to rise from the dead, would, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. He's speaking to a Gentile king here. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane. Most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. In other words, it can be proven. The king is familiar with these things, speaking of Agrippa, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God 
that not only you, but all who are listening, listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. So here we have the Apostle Paul in complete compliance with God, rejected. Festus knows the truth. King Agrippa knows the truth. They are fearful probably of the Apostle Paul and that's why they don't put him to death. And they reject the truth. Jonah says, I'm not going, I'm not going, I'm not going. Okay, I'll go. I'll tell him. He's going to destroy your city in 40 days and the whole city repents. We don't know. We're not God. Who did God want to hear the gospel? The Assyrians or King Agrippa? Yes. I'm challenging myself in saying that. The people we think should hear it and need to hear it and might accept it, share it with them. The people that there's no way they're going to accept it, share it with them. Because some of them will be broken, repent, and follow Christ. Let's actually turn to Romans conclude just reading two verses that we read last week. Romans 2. Paul summarizes. He does through several verses here. We're just going to read two verses. Verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, Belshazzar, Agrippa, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. The day came to Belshazzar. It probably came to Agrippa. I pray that it didn't because he heard the truth. Heavenly Father, thank you that I heard the truth at a young age and I heard the truth again, and I heard the truth again, and I heard the truth again. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your offer. Thank you for your promise. And thank you for the opportunity to share it with someone else. In Jesus' name, amen.